This is Philip with Soul Insights, and you are tuned in to Good Morning Market, where everyday businesses are empowered to lead their market with the latest in market news, insights, and strategy. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Good Morning Market. I'm so excited and glad that you're joining me today. Um, want to thank you for joining if it's your first time, and if you've been here for quite a while, thank you for being a part of this community once again. I stated last week, trying to generate some more community interaction, would want to hear from you, want to know my audience, and I want my audience to know me. So I started this thing where I uh, put out some posts and dropped it on the podcast, an invitation to all y'all to send in questions, comments, things that you want me to interact with on the podcast. And uh, we're going to do our first uh, edition of that today, testing out some different things as this podcast evolves for your desires and needs. So once again, you can uh, reach out to me through Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. Uh, You can email me, philip2lsoulinsights.com. And we got a submission. So hey, I'm going to address Montana Tom, who uh, I've been connected with for quite some time. She's the founder of Social Butterfly Savannah. For those of y'all who want to follow her and learn more about her social media prowess, she asked me maybe my own experience or perspective with work-life balance, which is a great one. So I want to address that real quick before we get into uh, the podcast, which is going to be a hot one. Uh, You can tell by the title, it's going to be a hot one, but let me quickly um, address that, work-life balance. Um, It's tough, right? So like Montana and like maybe some other folks who listen to this, we either own our own small businesses or in a business development role. Um, it's really, you know, it's, it's not that simple clock in, clock out. You know, you've got to be running either your business or your territory or your assignment like it's your own business. And so there's always more work to do. There's always the next thing off the list that you didn't get to. There's always that on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis. There's always, every time you get hot, I'm like, man, well, I guess I could do even more. So I definitely feel the pressure and I'm still figuring it out. So I have uh, I have kids, I have two young girls, and I have a wife, and I work from home, which gives me flexibility. But of course, everybody who during the telecommuting era has found out that that's good and bad, and it makes it harder to unplug in many ways when you work from the house. So work-life balance is tough. I think it's, first of all, just understanding a mentality that um, work is a part of what you do. It is not all of what you do. There will always be more work to do until the day you retire or the day you die. You'll never complete all the work that you want to do. So it's all about setting uh, aggressive but attainable goals and not over uh, overwhelming yourself. I think more so on a weekly basis. Uh, a book that was really helpful to me was the uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I really enjoyed that book. And what he talked about in terms of self-management for efficiency more than effectiveness um, was thinking of terms on more a weekly basis. And I think that you you never want to get into the habit, and I've been doing this lately, uh, of overbooking yourself on your calendar. Even if you're someone who, who is super organized and loves to have all that, all that calendar organization, you don't want to overbook yourself because that's how you feel defeated because you never were able to get to enough things. You know, For me, what is best for me when I'm at my healthiest is, is putting no more than three significant things. There's no such thing as something that takes 30 minutes. Um, so I try to block out you know, three big things per day uh, maybe two in the morning when I'm most productive and one in the afternoon. And then I have that set on a weekly basis and I try to get better on a weekly basis of saying no 
try to get better on a weekly basis of understanding that some things can get put off and understanding how to prioritize, right? There's Q1 things, which are both urgent and important. There's Q2 things, which are um, uh, not urgent, but important. And those are the things you really want to book your calendar. So it's all about figuring out where following your energy, knowing how to be productive. But once again, on the work-life balance side, you have to have that discipline to shut off the computer, to put the phone away, to smell the roses and be present in those relationships, which really in the end matter more than whatever widget you're selling or whatever you're doing on a daily, uh, weekly basis. So, you know, one guy that I uh, find inspiring, and he said, you know, he constructs his entire workday around his family. He works before eight o'clock in the morning because that's when the kids are going off to school. But once three o'clock comes around, he really doesn't do a lot of work because he wants to really pour into his kids while they're there. And then he decides that once the kids go to bed, then he'll do some more work. So that's not exactly what I do, but you know, I'm trying to take different pieces to learn how I can be fully working and not distracted from other distractions and have good, aggressive, but also breathable, realistic expectation on a weekly base for my productivity. But then also have to have those times on a daily, weekly, hourly basis to where you can unplug, to look away from the computer screen, to put the phone away, to be present with your relationships and to truly clock out. It's tough, easier said than done, but I think that we always need to be cognizant about what is most important now and we have to have those guardrails to keep our business life from eating up all of our personal life because frankly, a lot of the stuff in our personal life is just more important. So, that was a fun one, a cathartic experience to be able to interact with Montana and, and would love for y'all to send in more uh, questions or comments for me to interact with. Uh, also, please, at the outset, please leave a rating for the Good Morning Market Podcast. Share it with other business leaders. If you're enjoying it, would love to get the word out there. I'm looking for ways to promote the podcast myself, uh, both organically and through advertisement. But once again, the secret sauce to any podcast growing is just word of mouth. So um, let's get into the topic for the day. Philip is upset. I'm just going to warn y'all now. This is not going to be roses. Um, this is not going to be super inspiring. I think it will be helpful, however, um, but it's like that cold medicine. It's, that, it's, it's the medicine that doesn't taste good, but we need to take it. And, and I don't mean to, once again, I don't mean to uh, come across and, and kind of rain on anybody's parade. I think that this is one person's perspective, but I I've talked about inflation and I've talked about macroeconomics things probably about half the time in the episode. I think that y'all have noticed a trend if you've been with the Good Morning Market a long time that um, that if I'm not doing a guest and if it's just me, sometimes I talk about marketing strategy and, and I would say at least the other half of the time I'm usually talking about something around economics. And given the time in which I started my podcast, there's been more bad news, unfortunately, to talk about than good news, in my opinion. So, um, I'm seeing a lot of warning signs and what part of what precipitated my talking about this today about how I think on the whole we're headed for a longer, rougher road than many people want to think about when it comes to the overall national economy is the data that came out from uh, the CPI and the inflation uh, stats that were reported on for July year over year. It was eight and a half. Uh, economists were expecting higher, and so a lot of people are ready to throw the victory parade, um, slightly, only slightly hyperbolic, in that, you know, oh yeah, that this shows that things are turning for the better. 
I don't think so at all. And so that's what we're going to go into in today's episode is we're going to discuss all the things I'm seeing and why I think that we all need to work a lot smarter and we need to get going because the tough, the tough is getting tougher. The going is getting tougher. So we have to work that much smarter. And so I'm going to lay out in painful detail why I think that not only over the next year, but maybe over the next several years, the economy is not going to be good. A lot of the problems we're dealing with now will will be pernicious rather than transitory. And then I will touch at the end on some pieces that I've observed and heard from other experts on ways that we can be smarter despite those bad uh, economic environments. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, I will also say at the outset, um, we're not doing a market roundup this week because basically the entire economy is a bunch of economic analysis, so um, not going to be redundant in that way. And then the second clarifier before we get into it is these are obviously my opinions. So this is Philip Scrogg, and if you're if you're on Good Morning Market, you are getting exposed to the dangerous mind of Philip Scrogg in the second. Um, it's my own hot take. I do research it, and I try to be objective and not too partisan or, or, or hyperbolic or um, closed-minded, etc. But uh, this is my outlook on what's going on. It's my outlook on fiscal policy, which is a lot of what we're talking today. Uh, I'm a free market, classic economics guy. I parrot Milton Friedman. I'm not an economist, but you know I have my view on the way that fiscal policy should be handled, on the way that monetary policy should be handled. There are other approaches. Um, that what seems to be most prominent in uh, the United States policy these days is more of the Keynesian uh, economic policy, If for those of y'all who remember your econ class from college. Obviously, there's other approaches that hopefully we never touch, like the, the, the policies of Karl Marx. Okay, There's a bunch of different economic philosophies. Obviously, my opinions are my opinion. I can't pretend to be someone else. So it's going to be hot takes. And it, regardless of whether you come away with the same opinion, that's not so much the point. I want y'all to understand what's going on. I will interpret it differently than you will. But we all need to understand that these fiscal policies have consequences for every single business. My business of one person all the way up to Amazon and Google and the biggest companies on planet Earth. Monetary policy has consequences for all of us. What happening? What is happening right now is not good. That's objective fact. I think it's going to be pernicious for many years down the road, and then I'm going to address how we can deal with it. So with that said, let's get right into today's topic. several different points most of it's going to be doom and gloom i'm sorry you know i'm just the messenger don't shoot me so number one thing i want to discuss and i don't know that i've really taken time to flesh this out is paint just kind of just pointing out the obvious the economy is not getting stronger okay and i didn't pull up this time you know kind of this conference board type statistics of the near-term and long-term outlook in terms of consumer confidence um, ceo producer confidence etc cetera, etc cetera. regardless i'm not confident i'll just share my own opinion q1 and q2 of 22 2022 that is the two quarters upon which we now have um quarterly economic growth and production statistics the gdp stats came out back-to-back quarters of shrinking economy that is 
Essentially, the, 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 the normal layman's definition of a recession is the one we've historically used. We are in a recession. I see no reason to say otherwise. Uh, people who think we're not in a recession would bark back that uh, unemployment is low. That's true that unemployment is low. However, unemployment can often be a lagging indicator rather than a leading, leading at indicator. Um, most of us small business owners and mid-sized business owners and large-sized business owners tend to be good folks that aren't looking to hack our staff and, and start laying off people left and right um, ahead of when that really needs to happen. We tend to, and I think rightly so, you try to keep your people and you try to make layoffs the last resort rather than the first resort. So just because economy, the, the unemployment um, is good as of now does not mean that we are not in a good a good economy. I think we're in a bad economy right now. We're in a very underwhelming economy, and I think that unfortunately you will at least see small businesses um, not looking to scale as much, and they will stop uh, hiring at the same rates they presently are. Uh, and and moreover, part of the reason, unfortunately, that the unemployment rate has been low is because long un, un, long-term unemployment has been higher. Labor force participation rate has not recovered from pre-COVID levels, and it definitely hasn't recovered from, um, you know, 10 or 12 years ago during the, the big recession back in the 2010. We, we don't have as many people in the labor force period, whether they're, they have a job or they're looking for work. So, I don't buy that. The economy's not getting better. Uh, and then another data point for y'all to review is uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics reported recently uh, in August that non-farm business sector labor productivity, so how productive are American workers, that de- productivity decreased 4.6% in the second quarter of 2022. That's from the United States Bureau of Labor, uh, labor Statistics. We're being we're less productive. I don't know what else to say. We're being less productive 2022. All of the stats that I'm seeing, very underwhelming. And I don't see reason to for a lot of new wind in our sales to to jog the economy on the supply side. Um, so that's what it's it. Number one, economy is not getting stronger. Number two, inflation is going to be pernicious. It's not likely to change for several more years. I think if you look back on history and you look at the leading indicators which cause inflation, which is government spending and how much money we print. Once again, definitionally speaking, inflation is a monetary phenomenon. Too many dollars t- chasing too many, too few goods. When you have governments that have fiat currencies, basically that they can just determine at will what the currency is or isn't worth, how many, um, how much quantity of dollars the M two that they have pumped into the economy. Our M two has been going going way up. We've had we've jigged demand with d- blasting out uh, with total money supply. Um, we've been spending way more than we have, and we've been, we've been justifying that spending not only through borrowing, but increasingly through just printing because the United States treasury has this piggy bank where they can just go to the presses and print up as many dollars as they want to for no reason whatsoever. It does not have to be backed by gold or productivity or any kind of objective standard. They just do what they want. Those decisions have consequences. And that's why I think inflation, despite the recent, um, uh, you know, prognostication about, hey, well, you know, July CPI was up 8.5%. That's the recent news, but that was lower than expected, guys. So let's get excited. And so maybe we're we're peaking and, and things are going to get better now. Things are going to level off. Maybe we're at the end of the worst part of it. I don't know that that's the case. 
Main reason, um, and it's in the the main articles you'll read from like CNBC. The main reason that gas or uh, that uh, CPI was not as high as it was expected is because gas prices went down seven point seven percent. They went down seven point seven percent. Food and housing went up year over year, but gas prices were down seven point seven percent year over year. Hence the fact that July CPI was only up 8.5%, which is still ridiculous to say anybody clapping because of 8.5% year-over-year consumer price inflation. That's insane. Um, And the reason why, we talked about gas prices several episodes ago for those of you who labored through that one. That was a deep dive, and I frankly had a headache after exiting it, but we're all talking about gas prices, wanting to know what's going to happen. I went into it. I just read all the data of all the folks who really get into that world of energy prices. One of the reasons you'll see energy prices go down is twofold, supply and demand. If there's a great increase in supply, you'll see gas prices go down, supply and demand. If you see demand significantly diminish, such as um, people are forecasting, and this is all futures-based, it's not reactive, it's projective. If we see that the economy is shrinking and that summer travel is down and we see that folks aren't traveling as much or they're they're not traveling as much because the gas prices are high and there's not as much demand for gas, therefore, future uh, projection, gas futures will be down, gas prices will be down. Gas prices are down due to the fact that we're in a recession and there's reduced demand. It's not because we're increasing supply, which would be great because then, of course, that could affect everything else um, more long term. But the reason the gas prices are down is because we're in a recession. So you know, it's, it's kind of sad that the only reason that we, there is a silver lining supposedly in this 8.5% cloud is because of gas prices, which are related to another cloud, a thunderstorm, a recession, a reduced demand as a result of that. So I see no reason to celebrate on the most recent CPI stats. Um, another uh, thing that's, that, that that has been impacted by inflation is real wages. You know, small businesses are complaining, and rightly so, that we're having to jack up compensation to get folks to come work. And 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 it's true. The data is borne out that in the private market, we have been significantly increasing on average across the nation, even in markets like um, the Savannah metro area, where previously we had not done uh, much wage increase. Wages are going up. Employees are more expensive on a wages or total compensation level. But real wages for those folks have been decreasing. Real wages have taken a hit the entire year. Real wages, um, uh, everybody's taking a pay hit. I think I saw a stat, and I didn't verify this before the episode, but I think I saw a stat that on average the American household took a $5,000 pay cut last year not because their employer cut their pay by $5,000, but because inflation is a tax. Inflation is a pay cut. The 5000 average household pay cut due to inflation. Real wages are down. So I think that this is going to, to continue. Let me continue on with some other reasons why I think this is, that was really, it wasn't a reason, but let me tell you why I think inflation is going to be pernicious for years rather than we've topped off and now we're going to see the downward slope of inflation. Go take a look at the spending. Once again, Milton Friedman, one of the two most impactful uh, economists of all time, and you can literally go YouTube his um, speeches on and lectures on inflation. He, he just pulls out the, the data. This is not his his white tower theory. This is looking at, in the 20th century, nations and how they treated their currency and spending, and then what was the resulting inflation, period, end of story. 
Okay, and, and for and, and recently, what the powers that be decided in the United States government is that those rules no longer applied, and there's this talk about this modern monetary theory where inflation basically is impossible and you can do whatever you want. Then we're getting hit with reality in the face, and the reason that we've been dealing with inflation is you look at government spending um, really for a long, long time, but obviously things went supernova post-COVID, right? We shut down the country, and then we just started pushing out uh, cash by printing it to jog demand and just saying to hell with supply. So if you look at spending, I went and pulled up some data straight from the government websites. In 2020 and 2021 alone, go look at IRS spending in those years versus previous years, the previous four or five years. We spent nearly $1 trillion, $923 billion to be exact, in stimulus payouts and child tax, tax credit pushouts out of nowhere money we didn't have in the bank it's called it's called helicopter money you literally just foomf out of nowhere you print money and then you just start shoving it through a helicopter down into people's pockets right that was the cares act that was definitely the american rescue act the child tax credit 2020 2021 nearly 950 billion dollars just in money getting shoved into people's pockets and we saw all the ramifications of that. People were slower to come back to the workforce. People had more money to spend and were buying more products, and now they were buying more services. And the, the, the red-hot demand, even according to folks like Warren Buffett, was way exceeding supply. And we're seeing that it's being pernicious even after supply has somewhat leveled out as we've started to get more normal operations following um, the release of all the lockdowns and, of course, the release of the vaccine. Then you look at government spending, total government spending, $6.82 trillion spent by the United States federal government in fiscal 2021, $6.82 trillion with a T. That's 68% above its $4 trillion in tax receipts. By the way, $4 trillion in tax receipts in fiscal 2021 was a record. You taxpayers listening, you set a record last year in giving the federal government $4 trillion to handle all of its job. It said, um, Mr. and Mrs. Taxpayer, that's not nearly enough. We're going to spend every dollar that you gave us, and then we're going to spend another 68% on top of that just in one year. You set records and income tax and corporate income tax, and they still spend everything you gave them plus more than 50% more. That has consequences, ladies and gentlemen. Government spending was 44% of GDP in 2020. So if you're thinking about this, like think about if you're in your own bank account, how much money you earn in wages, and then like a percentage of that, what you spend on a monthly basis on your credit card. Think of it like that. So if you make, you know, $5,000 uh, a month, you know, how much, uh, how much are you then uh, spending beyond that? And in fact, it's even worse because government spending, um, it, it, a lot of it isn't direct return on investment. You know, it, that's another way to look at it. But government spending historically has been under, even in recent decades, under 40% of GDP. Government spending in 2020 was 44% of GDP. So out of all of the wealth that we produced, the government spending ate up 44% of that through spending. Debt obligations that you and I are on the hook for. And it's projected to be 40% in 2021. Not as high, but nevertheless high. Final data point to look at in terms of um, the issue with inflation is producer prices. That's more of, you know, 
what we're experiencing, kind of like the CPI. But now we're going to producer prices, what it costs you to produce things, and which, of course, is going to get passed on to the customer because something's got to give. Producer prices have been much worse than CPI. We hit a decade high in February uh, of 2021, a 10-year high. And then if you look at producer price index, it's skyrocketed ever since then. You're looking at 11 and 12% numbers on year-over-year inflation of what producers are having to pay for when they buy the the elements and components that go into them selling products to consumers. That's going to continue to get pressed on. And I think especially as you see the new policy from the government about uh, reducing um, the ability to write stuff off with a minimum uh, tax – which I understand the, the the rational for it, but once again, the other consequences of it, the the, the less uh, that the, the, these businesses are able to write stuff off, and their all of their producer prices are going up double digits, the prices to you are going to go up, and that will continue to happen, I think, for for quite some time. Um, the way to combat this, by the way, and I'll I'll, I'll you know uh, go ahead and address the interest rate uh, part of the conversation. Is uh, you know, it we're we're raising interest rates, but only by micro small measures. The Federal Reserve is really trying hard to delicately inch up, and I know three quarters of a point is supposed to be crazy, but really in context, they seem to be inching things up because they don't want to send us into a recession, which ha, we already are, in order to take out inflation but have our cake uh, and eat it too, where we don't have to then have a significant economic contraction. Once again, they're they're going up in small increments. It's not going to be enough at this rate unless they, you know, significantly expand the rate, and we'll touch on that in a little bit more detail. But once again, inflation I think is going to be pernicious because it's bad right now, and all of the inputs that that result in inflation, government spending, M two, which is monetary supply, interest rates, everything 2020, 2021, and so far in 2022 looks to continue that trend. Once again, if you want to if you want to stop inflation, you have to reduce government spending, you have to reduce the supply of money, you have to raise interest rates. Period. End of story. That's how it's done. So let me go into that real quick. New spending in 2023. Let's look at what's planned for the future. If we're tailing off, then supposedly we should be fixing the the causal factors that result in inflation. Let's look at planned spending for 2023. Projected federal government 2022 spending, by the way, is $5.85 trillion. So not as much as the 6.82 of 2021, but once again, going to be more than a trillion over, more than a trillion over what they'll get in tax receipts. So we're going to run another deficit. How are they going to get that money? That money is not, well, it is funny money in many ways, but where are they going to get that money from? They're going to get it from printing it or borrowing it. And we're running out of options to borrow it I would say more increasingly because there's probably more hesitation to lend to the United States with the, with the historic levels of debt that we're running. And then moreover, um, now that we're having to raise interest rates, it's more expensive to take out loans and debt because when we raise our interest rate, it affects the entire global market. Therefore, we then then the this vicious cycle gets exacerbated because we have to make interest payments on our debt, which is, um, last I checked, the number four greatest cost to the United States government is simply interest payments on its debt. The White House put out its 2023 budget proposal. What are they planning to spend next year? Because you know we got plenty of money in the bank, right? We should just spend as much as we can. Well, that's exactly the plan, ladies and gentlemen. We're looking at $5.9 trillion in planned spending according to White House desires. Go check it yourself. $5.9 trillion in spending versus $4.8 trillion in taxes. 
Okay, now those aren't exact to the T numbers. What we were looking at in totality was a $1.2 trillion deficit, according to the White House 2023 proposed budget. $5.9 trillion spending over that, uh, $4.8 trillion in taxes, a $1.2 trillion uh, operating deficit in 2023. We are continuing to do, do the same things that led and continue to lead to inflation. And I'll just say this as, as I break away uh, and, and hit on a couple other points is we are in a we need a paradigm shift in my opinion. Once again, this is Philip the free free market economics hands off a f, you know free markets kind of guy. What the government is doing is this being very very active in engineering the economy, constantly trying to keep the floor low and the ceiling high by manipulating the monetary currency, not having solid solid monetary policy. They do whatever they want to with it, quantitative easing, whatever whatever jigs demand. Because we're always thinking about how can we jig demand? How can we get people spending money? And then how can we spend more money as the government to do this new program, that new program, this new program, that new program? You know, climate change, micro trips uh, to to bring over uh, semiconductor production to the United States. Oh, and let's do let's do uh, solar panels and let's do uh, infrastructure projects and let's do uh, new new let's pay for all this healthcare stuff and let's just do this and that and let's do you know they're talked about free uh, daycare and let's do okay, but where are you going to get the money from? Well, we'll just print it. That's what we're dealing with. We got the government who just wants to always find the next program to spend on this. And then we're constantly trying to manipulate our fiscal and monetary policy to get folks to spend more money, to make sure that people always are flush with cash and they're always spending money, regardless of whether or not they're producing anything, regardless of whether or not the supply can meet the demand. We seem to not care. And we have this print and consume strategy. That's our philosophy right now in economics. Rather than a pay down your debt, you know, uh, 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 make more than you spend, and then produce. We're not talking about supply side. Everybody, in in terms of the powers that be on our economy, seem to only be fixated on demand. They don't care about supply side economics. We're not having a conversation about how can we unleash the power of the American producer? How can we unleash businesses? How can we unleash energy? How can we produce more and and up and up and up and up and up our output? Which is the way businesses think. How can we run the American economy like a business? How can we run the, the the government more like a business? We're not talking about that because we're not talking about balancing budgets and we're not talking about increasing production. We're talking about how can we spend more regardless of how much money we have to spend and how can we jog demand to keep people buying stuff. And this is the result, ladies and gentlemen. We will continue to deal with inflation until we fix those two causal factors, government spending and monetary policy. That's, that's, you know, I, I guess that's what we have to say there. So let's transition real quick to touch on a couple more points when it comes to labor, because I know that a lot of y'all are focusing on whether or not you should hire, what's going on with the hiring situation, and then also uh, looking at interest rates.
Regarding labor, I wanted to make a couple quick points on labor. We still have the same issues in the near term for small businesses. Coming from the National Federation of Independent Businesses, coming out of Washington, D.C., small businesses across the country continue to raise wages to keep employees and fill a historically high level of open positions. According to NFIB's monthly jobs report, seasonally adjusted, 49% of all owners reported job openings they could not fill in the current period, down one point from June and down two points from May's 48-year record high. So we got nearly half of all businesses saying that they got job openings they can't fill in the period. They're raising wages and they're still having the same issue. And on the long term, I'm once again not optimistic about what's going on with our labor force despite the fact that everybody will tell you everything's hunky-dory because we right now have a low active unemployment rate. Look at the labor force participation rate. It's projected. I look at the projections from some of the economists who keep track of this. It's projected to continue to flat round, flat line rather around 60% of people who can work who are working. Never recovering, apparently within the next several years, foreseeable future, from where we were at before the Great Recession, so to speak, 10, 12 years ago, which was 63% average. After that, we never recover. We get about 61%. And then after... Uh, COVID or when COVID first happened, we dropped below 60% and we're kind of flatlining and we're projected to continue to flatline. And I saw one interesting data point as to why this is, you know, is it, is it baby boomers retiring early? Is it young folks living with their mom and dad and they got flush with, with the helicopter cash. And so they're just not going back to work with the entry level jobs. You know, what is this going, what's going on here? One explanation that I found, um, from a government resource, I can't remember if it was Bureau of Labor Statistics or whoever it was, as they said, well, just the population is getting older. If you're looking at the net average age of an American, it's getting older because if you look at our population bubbles and bursts, we have the baby boomers obviously are a larger percentage of the population because we haven't had subsequent baby booms. We had a mini baby boom in the mid-2000s, but the American, the American uh, birth rate for for birth rate for women has been sub two. I think it's one point seven percent, which is not a unique trend for Western countries. But nevertheless, it's been decades now that that American families have a starting families later, having fewer kids. That means that we're going to have an older growing population. And guess what? People are wanting to retire at sixty five, but then they live for another twenty years. And with the way that our system is set up, they consume a lot for those twenty years. You're looking at all the government programs and trusts and security funds and, and entitlements that we have set up. You know, as we get further and further down this road with the population dynamics that we have, we're going to have fewer producers and more consumers. That's the only way to explain it. As we get older, based off the way our system is set. And I think COVID exacerbated that trend. We do see stats that there are several baby boomers who came back to work rather than pr- pr- retire permanently, partially because of increased cost of living because, yeah, you know, Social Security doesn't adjust for inflation the way that it, you, you might think it would. So there are some baby boomers who have come back into the workforce. But on the whole, the macro long-term trend that we're facing, we're experiencing now, we'll continue to experience. We have an aging population. We don't have as many new, younger people coming into the uh, workforce, and we have more consumers than producers, period, okay? Technically, we have more producers than consumers if you look at the 60%, 60% is a majority, but on the whole, 
as our population gets older and how long they live and consume. And I'm not dogging anybody for wanting to retire and, you know, have a, a comfortable retirement. I'm not, I'm not dogging it, but it's just the reality of the situation. As we age, that separation is getting exacerbated between those working and producing and those who are retired and consuming. A couple other points in terms of why I think over the next several years we're not looking good on the national economy as a whole. Recently, the new bill that got passed by Congress is going to green light the hiring of 87,000 new agents for the Internal Revenue Service. Prepare for audit. Why else would they need to hire 87,000 new IRS agents. It's not as if there was a gross shortage of accountants over there at the IRS. 87,000. I've heard some folks saying, oh yeah, this will be an exclusively, um, you know, go after, you know, the only the, the fortune size companies who are using all these, well, 87,000. And my understanding is that uh, there was an amendment that was proposed to, um, to make sure that it's focusing on businesses, individuals that have, you know, really high incomes, $400,000 a year more, and that was turned down. The The basic logic of it is, just to think for yourself, 87,000 new IRS agents, do you think that your risk for getting audited by the IRS goes up or is not impacted over the, over the next tax year, the year after that, the year after that? The answer is obviously yes. I know that I'm more likely to be audited, and it's not like I'm worried directly because I'm doing something wrong. Um, I have a CPA, and we try to handle everything by the book, but audits are crappy regardless of whether or not you've kept good books or whether you've done something wrong or not. Getting audited is not fun, and it's an arduous, painful process. So that's another reason to be skeptical moving forward is you know, it becomes that much harder to be able to run your business when you know that you've got to be that much tighter with your, your books and your accounting because your risk of audit increases. And then final point in terms of looking at what we're seeing now, which gives us reason for optimism or skepticism moving forward, is interest rates are going up, which means comparatively speaking, because we've been at a seemingly net you know, close to zero rate in terms of interest rates, now finally that they're going up to 2.5% and they'll continue to go up, it is going to be harder to get capital, right? And which is the whole point, right? You make money tighter, that way it's harder to get money, therefore we can uh, slow down that demand to help supply catch up, which is the basic uh, logic behind interest rates to fight inflation. We need to jack up the rates, really. If you look at history, like back during the early 80s and Paul Volcker was trying to attack our ridiculous inflation that happened throughout the entire 70s with super high inflation for like 10 years, they had to jack up rates to 11%, 12% to get to get interest, to get uh, inflation to come down. We're talking about 2.5% like that's crazy. It needs to be 5, 6, 7, 8, whatever it needs to be done. We need, I, th I would rather us go into a nasty recession now that's shorter term because we decided to be physically responsible and play it hardball to get inflation down and just rip the Band-Aid off in order to be able to recover on the other side more quickly and have a more long pro pro prolonged economic health on the other side, which is what happened in the 80s. But we're not ripping that Band-Aid off. We're slowly eking up the interest rates. So, uh, if you're sufficiently depressed, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I apologize in advance. This is Philip's opinion for what he's seeing on near-term inflation stats, 
long-term government spending issues, the projected spending moving forward in 2023, the labor force productivity and participation rate, the the IRS uh, IRS agents adding more red tape for businesses of all size, the interest rates going up and simultaneously not going up quickly enough. These are reasons to think that the economy is not looking good for the foreseeable future. With that said, let's then transition to and bring it home with a silver lining on how we can combat this, how we can be be great and successful and accomplish goals despite these situations. do things about this. Now, I will say that once again, decisions have consequences. I'm not here to tell you that I, my business or your business or anybody's business is not going to have setbacks because of all these economic forces. You know, keeping your books is going to be more complicated. Your your costs are going to continue to go up. Your labor costs are going to continue to go up and it's continuing to be hard to find employees, it would seem. It's not going to be as attractive to enter new markets. You know, it, you know we're going to have to tighten the belt but that being said there were some some interesting uh and 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 helpful tidbits that came to me through a couple of different sources and I know I've spoken on some of these in pre- previous episodes on how to deal with inflation one was a presentation by a local score chapter Jessica Belfry and, and her colleagues came up to the Savannah Downtown Business Association and delivered a presentation sharing the highlights of what's going on with inflation, but also they spent more time from their experience running successful businesses in such tough economic periods on how to be successful despite those or how to adjust to those factors and to deal with those factors then rather than bury your head in the sand or just you know hold on tight and just weather the storm and, and hope that you make it to the other side. And another source that I found was Small Business Trends actually um, did an entire episode on this. Small Business Trends is a great media publication for small businesses, and they talked about this in depth with some experts on how do small businesses address inflation. Are we helpless or are there there things that we can do? The, 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 The truth is the latter. There are things we can do. And the number one thing that I thought was very helpful from the SCORE chapter at their presentation was streamline we have to work smarter we, we we just have to work smarter when the times get tough we have to work smarter and harder and what they said is hey um you need to do a needs assessment most of us are trying to hire employees and we're having a hard time as the data shows to fill those slots but maybe we need to take another look and do a needs assessment look at all the duties that you have for this job opening that you have and are you fully utilizing and maximizing the human capital that you already have on staff is there a way that you can reconfigure the uh the work allocation to not need that employee or to make that employee from a full-time to a part-time or for a part-time to a seasonal or if you need to outsource work with work with with a vendor rather than taking on that total you know compensation that comes with a full-time w-2 hire 
Um, look at your overhead. That's another thing. Look at your overhead. Where can you where can you uh, tighten up your vendor relations to consolidate vendor relations and get bundled uh, scale discounts? Where can you automate? That was something that was talked about extensively on small business trends. I tell you, that's exactly what the bigger businesses do. They they use technology and they use it very wisely to create new efficiencies and new scale through automation using technology rather than trying to have a person do the monkey work. Anywhere there's monkey work, you automate and you use technology to build new efficiencies to streamline once again. Obviously attacking debt, but once again, overhead, vendor relations, automate. And then the final, uh, uh, one of the other things that, or two of the things rather that Small Business Trends said that stood out to me. One was buying in bulk. You have to get more strategic with looking if you, whether you're a business to business or you're you're a service or or you sell a product, we're all buying supplies and equipment. We're buying product. So you have to be more strategic with keeping track of what you can buy and when, when the prices are going up and down. You might need to go buy in bulk when you see a deal. When you see a deal come, you buy in bulk. You stock up because with the way trends are going, prices are going to continue to rise. So as you do get those opportunities to consolidate vendor relationships, buy in bulk, get a deal, you have to maximize those opportunities. And then the other thing that you know, small business trends talked about was you need to get into the business of data. You need to look at your data, regardless of where your starting point is, be it through your accounting system, your POS, your sales processing system. If you have business um, intelligence software, which more and more small businesses need to have those kinds of tools, that's exactly what I do with my business is try to provide businesses of every side with the business intelligence where they can see what's going on with their money, they can see what's going on with their performance, namely from my perspective on the revenue generation side, but then there's also the the financial and operations side of the house where business intelligence can be an extremely helpful tool. Because once again, we need to be looking for effectiveness and efficiencies under every single rock and, and nook and cranny. Look at that. You can look at your history. You can know what are your input and what are your historical trends to then turn around and look into the future and look at how do I raise my prices to what degree to make sure that I don't affect my number of customers and sales volume. Then once again, if you're doing that in conjunction with reorienting yourself towards your ideal customers, uh, then you are combining that with your overhead, your vendor relations, automations, doing a needs assessment to make sure your labor optimized. There's a way down, ways to be, to tighten the belt and just be more lean. It's not cutting. Once again, it's not just cutting costs and reflexively raising your prices and then not doing any marketing and just holding on and waiting for the storm to end. That's, that's failed small business strategy. Real small business strategy looks at the historical data, does a needs assessment of your own of your own doors, and then gets lean and mean. The going gets tougher, the tough get going to look into the future and to grow despite those challenges because you're working that much smarter than the economy is affecting you. And then one of the final points I wanted to wrap this home with is once again reorient. They talked about in the score presentation is hey. You might be looking to go into a new market, new geographical market, new target demographic. That's expensive, ladies and gentlemen. It takes a lot to enter a new market. Market development is an expensive process. You, you have to do a lot of saturation with brand building and advertising, sales force, building the relationships, the networking. It's expensive. And if you feel like you got your house in order to do it, more power to you because it's a huge payoff, but it's also high risk. And what SCORE talked about was, Rather than looking to get that net that next net new customer through tons of new marketing spend or sales spend, why don't you look to go back to the 
customers that are happy with you and are already buying from you to a certain degree and look to cross-sell, upsell before trying to go to that next gargantuan behemoth of going into a new market. I've talked about this on the podcast, ladies and gentlemen. I did an episode towards the end of last year about targeting versus reach. There's a certain, there's those movable middles that I talked about in that episode last year. You can still find it, targeting over reach. And this was not even my research. This was advanced marketing uh, analysis and research. You've got your core who are already spending almost all of their money in your designated product category with you. And you've got the folks who have kind of fly by night, they bought once and you've not really seen them again. But then you have those movable middles. Sometimes they buy from you, sometimes they don't. If you can work on marketing to those folks who have already showed you that they want to spend money with you and that they like your product to a certain degree or your service, and they've already shown you that um, you know that they know you, you have customer data on them, you have some of that customer uh, currency, you can market towards them, which is a lot less expensive, and try to earn more of their wallet share. So you can cross-sell, upsell, and once again, that goes into another proven concept, even during recessions, which we are in a recession, is product development and diversification. Launching new products is always very helpful during recession because it gives you a new stream of revenue, not to a brand new market that you have to develop from scratch, but to an existing market that you're trying to penetrate and earn more wallet share in. So once again, cross-sell, upsell, reorient towards your most profitable customer segments, and develop new products from time to time to give them new value, new value, new value. You earn more and more wallet share. It's called profitability, ladies and gentlemen. If you're doing that plus streamlining and optimizing your labor, your overhead, your vendor relationships, your automating technology, you're going to be in a lot better position to come out of the other side of recession whenever it does end, to come out of the other side of inflation whenever it does end, to be the leader in your market, to be a growing and expanding and to be in a great position to take advantage of opportunities because you knew how to see the threats and prepare for the threats. My final point for y'all, ladies and gentlemen, is something I'm actually going to be handling this week is uh, make sure your books are in order and have a good tax attorney and a CPA. 87,000 IRS agents. I still can't believe it. Anyways, so I, uh, you know, I'm not trying to scare anybody, but hey, I, I'm going to make sure I'm talking with my CPA and we're becoming best buddies and that I'm making sure my house is in order to the nth degree. Um, so uh, there's that. But I think that does it for today. Thank you all so much for joining Good Morning Market. Once again, I don't want to be a skeptic. I'm naturally more of an optimist, but hey, um, I'm kind of upset with the way things are going. I know that y'all are upset. We all want things to be better, and I think that if we make good decisions, that things will get better. We still command our own ships. There's just unfortunately a lot of rougher waters through which we have to navigate right now. But don't forget to send in your cues. I would love to interact with you more through social media and through the podcast. If you send in a question or a comment, maybe you've got a hot take to my hot take I would love to address that. Um, know your customer. Once again, you can go to soulinsights.com to get more information on how you can know that core, most profitable customer and developed great strategies to earn more of their wallet share. And remember, as y'all go into this week, in order to lead your market, you must first hear and know your market. 